I carried to the pulpit this morning two amazing documents. One I always carry to the pulpit, and the other one I brought this morning is a Declaration of Independence. One, of course, is amazing because it's divine. It's the very Word of God Almighty. The other is amazing, is a startling document, uh, maybe one of the greatest documents ever written by man. Uh, tomorrow's the 240th anniversary of this little document. Uh, I believe it's worth remembering and thinking about a little bit what this is all about. Uh, so for just a little while, let me share some of my thoughts with you. Uh, you may not agree with all of them. That's okay. First Amendment gives you the right to be wrong. <laughs> but I think it's good to think about it a little bit and remember some history, and we'll do that for the first part of the sermon this morning. Now, when I held this little book up, the, the Declaration of Independence is not this big. This also contains the Constitution of the United States. The Declaration itself is only six pages in this little book. It's a very brief document. Four of those pages of the six discuss one thing, an evil king. And that's the first thing I want us to think about, to why this document was written. It was written because of an evil king. The first page of the Declaration of Independence, in this book anyway, begins with the startling premise, startling for those times and still startling today, that people have God-given rights, that people institute governments, that people give a government a system of laws that they agree to and people that they agree to the consent to govern. And then it says when people do that, they have a right to change it. That if it gets off track, if it gets too oppressive, if it goes against their God-given rights, then they can change it. The document says we don't do that lightly. The document says, but when the abuses become so great, it's time to change the government. That's what the first page says. Now, after that, it goes into a section for, like I said, four pages that talk about the king. It begins this way. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then the founders wrote 18 facts about things that King George was doing that were wrong. After they describe what the king is doing wrong, the last page, or really just the last half a page, says, because of all that, we declare ourselves free and independent. We declare ourselves free from that tyranny. We will be free, we will run things, we will handle things here. Now, that's what the document says. That was a lot easier to write than it was to make a reality. 
it was very difficult to make it a reality. In fact, it took a war. It took a revolutionary war. Something that really never should have been seen before, like what happened. And in war, people die. That's the second point I want to make. To achieve this independence, patriots had to die. The last sentence of the Declaration says this, the men that signed it, 56 men, says, For the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Great sentence. They pledged that this independence was worth dying for. We often forget that. We, we forget what they went through. And the, the statement there that when they declared independence from the king, they did so with dependence on God. They said, this this is the way we're going to do this. Uh, The 56 men that signed that document, uh, it wasn't just rhetoric to them. They knew that if they succeeded, they were still going to have a really, really hard time. It was going to be tough old years trying to learn to be independent. And if it went bad, they were all going to be hanged. Of the 56, five of them were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve of them had their homes sacked and looted and burned. Uh, Two of them lost their sons in the army. One lost two sons. Nine of the 56 died in that war. And these weren't men that needed to do this. They were mostly rich men. They had property. They were well off. They were comfortable. But they considered liberty, freedom, more important than their security. They thought it was worth dying for, and they did. John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail shortly after the signing of that document. He said, I am well aware the toil and the blood and the treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see the end is worth more than all the means. It was the attitude that our founders had and they were willing to die for. Now, if we understand that, we ought to, my third point, live to honor this country. Now, I admit today, if you dropped in from Mars and watched the news or read the papers or saw the man on the street, uh, you probably wouldn't realize that we ought to live to honor this country. Uh, You can look at YouTube and look at man on the street interviews about the United States or history or the 4th of July or any topic like that, and you'll find appalling ignorance. You'll find that people don't know any of the things I've just told you. They don't understand why we ought to honor this country, so many of them don't. I read one time an Iraqi war vet that had been over there and 
fought, came back and said, until you've been to a country without freedoms, you don't appreciate what we have. I think that's the position many Americans are in. I haven't seen anything else. They're comfortable with what we have and don't know why we got it or why it's unusual. Anytime I think about living to honor this country and people that understood what I've just told you, I think of an old man named Jess Overby. Some of you here are old enough to remember Jesse. Uh, Jesse was one of the old, old-time members of Northside and passed away many years ago. Uh, Jess was a little bit of a character, and uh, when I first started preaching some, Every once in a while, I'd make an illustration about the military or say something about a war that I knew something about, World War II or Vietnam or something, and it never failed. Afterwards, Jess would come find me and straighten me out because he'd tell me about the big war, about WW1. Now, that was a war. And Jess would explain it to me and tell me stories and about things and how it happened and the war that he fought in. And I enjoyed that correction from a WW1 vet. When Jesse died, we had the funeral at Northside, and I remember sitting over on one side and watching. At the end of the sermon and all that, his flag was draped with a coffin, as befits a veteran. At the end of the service, uh, the honor guard came in. His honor guard was four of his peers, four old WW1 vets, all in their 80s at least, probably some in their 90s, I don't know. But they started at the back of the auditorium, and they came down the middle aisle, and they weren't moving very quickly. They shuffled. They were all stooped. And when they got to the front and through the coffin, they stopped. They all came to attention. They became 19 again. They saluted. They honored this country. They honored Jesse's service. As citizens of this country, of this great country, we ought to stand tall. Not just in front of a flag, not just at a funeral, not just when the Star-Spangled Banner is sung, but we ought to live to honor this great nation because of the freedom that we have. And the fourth thing I want to think about this is that this nation has provided a better life than any people in the history of the world have ever enjoyed. I know you can hear all kinds of complaints. I know you can hear naysayers and critics and go on and on about how bad this country is, how unfair and horrible and racist and sexist and discriminatory, and how Europe and Sweden and Finland and Cuba are doing it better. You can hear all that. I'd remind you of one thing. All of those critics have one thing in common. They all still live in the United States of America. This country has provided a better life. Do we have faults? Yes. But there's no other country like this. 
in just 200 years. I mean, we're a very young country. In just 200 years, go back and look at the things we've done. We've filled this country from sea to sea with skyscrapers and highways, and we've discovered atoms, and we've explored the depths of the sea, and we've walked on the moon. We've defended others from tyranny. This country has done more to help other peoples, other nations, than any people ever in the history of this planet. We've got half the land per person that Russia has. We've got half the resources that Russia has. But we feed the world. They come to us for food. People come to our shores, and more than we can handle come to our shores. They're greeted by Lady Liberty when they come through New York Harbor. And they come because they see what we have. They yearn to be free. It's truly a great nation. started with this little document, and I think it's worth remembering that sometimes. I know some of you are worried about filling in the blanks on the handout. We'll go back and do that. I said I brought two books today. Uh, These two books are very different. They do have some similarities, though. Uh, One defines a great country. One describes a holy nation. verse that was read for you from 1 Peter chapter 2 begins in verse 9. Peter says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. He's talking to us, to Christians. He says, you're a holy nation. We happen to live in a great country, but we're members of a holy nation. Let's look very quickly at some of those similarities I think we can see. Uh, The founders declared themselves independent from an evil king. We've been set free from sin. Sin was our evil king. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. You sit down and start to read the history of the human race and our relationship with God, and you get to about page two when Satan comes in. Satan comes in and he gets us evicted from the garden. From there, it just gets worse. God told Cain a few pages later, he told Cain, he said, sin desires you. It means sin wants to control you. Sin wants to ruin your life. Romans 1 describes what sin does to people. Read through there and you just see how sin makes it worse and worse and worse. You don't have to read Romans 1. Just look around us. Look at the people in this world that have troubles. It's because of sin. Sin enslaves us. It's a tyrant. It's an evil master. Romans 1 says, talks about the, the guilt of sin. 
that it puts on us, about the consequences of sin, about the, the power of sin. At the end of verse 9, it says, We have been brought out of that darkness into his marvelous light. We have independence from sin. Number two, just as the patriots had to die for our nation's freedom, Jesus had to die for us. Verse 10 talks about that. It says, Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have received mercy. John 3.16 says God so loved us that he chose to give his son. That's an awful sacrifice. We can't comprehend that kind of sacrifice. But you were worth it to him. The end is worth the means. Romans talks over and over again about being free indeed. We've been freed by the death of Jesus. Just as Americans ought to live to honor this country, members of a holy nation ought to live worthy. Uh, That's a biblical phrase. That's in there so many times. Sometimes we forget how much of the New Testament is about how we ought to live. We look sometimes at the New Testament and we think, well, we've got to find doctrine in here. Oh, there's doctrine in there. Sometimes we look and spend our whole life saying, we've got to figure out what to do for an hour on Sunday morning. And how to do it just right. And that's okay. But that's not what the New Testament is about. The New Testament, the letters written to Christians over and over are talk about how to live life. You read Romans or Corinthians or Thessalonians or Ephesians, and all of them, the theme in there is because you belong to God, you ought to live this way. Because you belong to God, this is how you ought to act. You ought to act godly. You read Philippians or Romans or Colossians, and it says succinctly, live lives worthy of God. Live worthy of what you've been given. Live worthy of the independence that you have from sin. Live worthy of the one that died for you. That's what the New Testament is about. Well, to live worthy. And I know that's hard sometimes because it's a broken old world and Satan's working. And we get drawn away by temptation. We get pulled to the carnal things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, John says. We get pulled toward all of that. And when we do, it's hard to live worthy. We get bogged down. We we get discouraged with the troubles and pains and problems that a broken world gives us. And, And we get so distracted that we kind of shuffle through life. We ought to straighten up. We ought to straighten up and say, I'm a child of the king. I'm going to live worthy of that. That's what Paul and the other writers say over and over again. Because he died for you. Because you're his child, act like it. Live like it. We ought to live worthy. Last point. As people see our freedom, they want to come here. 
Well, as people see an abundant life, they'll want an abundant life. Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have a better life. Christians have one, and people want one. A few years ago, we spent a whole year on Sunday mornings talking about one verse, John 10.10. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief, that's Satan, that's sin, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wanted us to have an abundant life, and we spent a whole year talking about what that means. In all the areas of life, if we follow his principles, if we live worthy, we'll have an abundant life, a more abundant life. When we live worthy, everything's better. Our finances, our marriages, our family, our work life, our fellowship with Christians, even the dying is better when we live worthy. We enjoy an abundant life. If those around us see an abundant life, instead of somebody bowed down and shuffling under the weight of sin, they'll want some abundant life. You can probably think of a lot more similarities than I had time to share with you. There's also probably some differences you could think of. I've got time to just share one difference with you. Uh, This great country is temporary. I don't know how temporary. We've lasted 240 years. It seems like we're getting close to the point of no return. You look around and see how little people know about what we have and why we have it and how they behave, and it's kind of discouraging. We've lost many of our freedom, and we're losing more all the time. In fact, if you get a copy of this and read the 18 facts, that the founders listed against King George, you'll think you're reading the front page. We're, we're suffering under the tyranny, much like they did then. So I don't know how long it's going to last. I do know a couple of things that give me encouragement. Number one, it is 99% of the Christians in history had it worse than we do. As bad as it looks to us, we see the morality falling, we see freedoms falling, we see all of that. We still get better than probably 99.9% of the Christians that ever lived. Paul, writing the things he did, he was under Roman rule. We've got it pretty good still. And the second thing that gives me encouragement is when I get discouraged about how things are going sometimes, is I realize it's up to him. It's finally up to him. You, I'm saying, yeah, we vote, we lobby, we pray, we do all the things we can, but it's still up to him. And we'll talk more about that tonight. If you come back tonight, we'll talk about our trust in government. Um, he may save it all. Looks like it's going in the wrong direction. He can turn it around. You realize he may save it all for the sake of 700 righteous 
I don't know what his number is. I don't know how many righteous he has to have to save this nation, but he might. But regardless, it is temporary. Holy nation is eternal. Fill in that last blank. It's eternal. There's a more glorious freedom waiting for us than, well, Paul said your mind can't conceive it. So I can't describe it if a mind can't conceive it. But it's a more glorious freedom than anything we know in the eternal kingdom and the eternal holy nation. I mentioned Lady Liberty a little bit ago, Statue of Liberty. The history of that statue interests me. It was proposed by a Frenchman, French lawyer, jurist, that had studied American history. He was also an anti-slave organizer in France and about 1865, came up with the idea that France ought to give us some kind of monument. Uh, What really motivated him was he had written three volumes about American history, and he was so interested, so touched by how this country was founded on biblical principles. That's where the revolution came from. And he compared that to France, which a few years later had revolted, had had a revolution, but it was by atheists. And he compared those two, and he was deeply touched by what America had accomplished. So a hundred years later after that, he said, let's give them a monument. And he got a campaign started, and they raised money and hired a sculptor, and they built the Statue of Liberty and sent it over here. There's a bronze plaque near the statue with a poem by Emma Lazarus. We don't know all of it. It's called the New Colossus, but there's one part of it that we know pretty well. The statue stands with one arm raised holding the torch, the other holding a table of laws. And at her feet, many of you may have seen it, there's a broken chain at her feet. And she says with that arm raised, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's a striking picture. There's a better picture in here. There's a picture in here of Jesus with both arms outstretched. And he says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. If you need freedom from sin, if you want to live an abundant life, Jesus is the one to give it to you. Jesus wants to help. We want to help if you need that in your life. If you need that this morning, come. Let's stand and sing.